You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And as you're turning there, I want you to consider, what do you want people to pray for when they pray for you? What do you want people to pray for when they pray for you? What do you pray for when you pray for others? Well, when Jesus prayed for us, he prayed that we would be one. When Jesus prayed for us, he prayed for our unity as his people. We're going to consider his prayer this morning in John chapter 17. I want to look especially at verses 20 through 23, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1 so that you can get some context from the whole chapter. Listen now to God's word in John chapter 17, starting in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. And here's what we'll consider this morning, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, 
that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Here's the main point I want to make from this text for us this morning. Our unity testifies to the mercy and love of God. Our unity testifies to the mercy and love of God. We're going to consider that main point from this text in two steps. First, we'll look at verses 20 and 21. Our powerful unity testifies to the mercy of God. And then verses 22 and 23, our precious unity testifies to the love of God. Our powerful unity, which testifies to God's mercy in the first two verses. Our precious unity, which testifies to God's love in the second two verses. So first, our powerful unity testifies to the mercy of God. Jesus makes clear here who he's praying for. Did you notice the transition? From verse 19 to verse 20, he's not only praying for the disciples, but for every one of his followers in the future, including us. He says, look at verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The these only there are the ones he's prayed for since verse 6, which is why I started at the beginning of the chapter, which we just heard. That's his first disciples, the 12, minus Judas who betrayed him. But he's not praying for them only. In verse 20, the subject of his prayer shifts to all of his future followers. That includes all of us here who are following the Lord Jesus. He's praying for us. He says he's not praying for the world in verse 9, but he's praying for those who are following him. Specifically, verse 20, those who will believe in me through their word. That's the word of the disciples, the word of the apostles. It's the word that we have in Scripture. It's the word as it's shared from one follower of Christ to a future follower of Christ. You can think about evangelism. When somebody shared the gospel with you and you believed for the first time, you became one of the people marked out by Jesus' prayer in verse 20. Those who will believe in him through his word. Now the rest of what I'm going to say this morning is a message from one Christian to a bunch of other Christians. But I don't assume that everybody in the room is a Christian. So I just want to say up front, If you're not one of the ones Jesus prays about in verse 20, if you're not one who believes in him by the word of the apostles yet, I would urge you that today you could become one, that you could believe in the Lord Jesus, that in fact you should believe in the Lord Jesus because there's no other way to have your sins forgiven. The God whom this Jesus is praying to, the Father, is a good God who made everything. He's righteous and holy And he created all of us with a good standard for our lives. The sad news of the world that we live in is that we're all sinners. That's what the Bible calls it. We've not done what God said to do, and we've done what God said not to do. We've sinned, each of us, all of us. This good God is just. And because he's just, he should punish us for our sin. In an eternity, away from him. But this good God is also gracious. And I hope you saw in Jesus' prayer God's mercy 
which he holds out to everyone who will just come to Jesus. Jesus was sent by the Father to live a life perfectly under his word, to do everything God says and to do nothing that God says not to do. The opposite of what we've all done. And then Jesus went to the cross and died in the place of sinners, like you and like me. He suffered my punishment. He suffered the punishment of everyone who will believe in him by the word of the apostles, the ones he's praying for. And he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, even God's judgment, taking on himself for the sake of his people. And anyone who turns from sin and trusts in him can be forgiven of their sins, reconciled to God. You can receive God's mercy today if you haven't already. I'd love to talk to you more about that after the service if you want to know what that looks like. So Jesus is praying for those who believe that gospel that I just preached, who have received the mercy of God. He says that in verse 20. I just want to ask a couple of questions of these four verses to see if we can get at their meaning. First, what is it that unifies us? What is it that unifies the people Jesus are praying for? Well, I think it's the mercy of God. It's that the Father sent the Son to save sinners. That's the mercy of God. This is the thing that unifies us. Look at verse 21. You can see it. Jesus prays that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This work of God, the Trinity, Father and Son and Spirit, on God's people makes them one, just as God is one. Our unity as God's people reveals something of God's unity. And this is not just the kind of unity that's feel-good, like we have a lot of good feelings for each other, we like each other, we share the same interests or hobbies or preferences. It's much deeper than that. And you can tell from John chapter 17. Look at the context. What is it that unifies us? Well, back in verse 3, the ones Jesus are praying for are the ones who have eternal life. They know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Then in verse 4, they're the ones who have received what Jesus has done, the finished work of Christ, his life and death and resurrection from the dead. Then look at verse 6. These are the ones who have heard the word that's preached and they've kept it by God's grace. Then look at verse 8. Jesus prays that these are the ones who have received the words that the Father has given him. So the word of the Father that's been preached and believed and received by these people. This is a deep, rich unity that the followers of Christ can have around him and his word. This is why the 19th century evangelical Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle said, the unity which our Lord prays for is not a unity of forms, discipline, government, and the like, but unity of heart and will and doctrine and practice. It's a spiritual unity, which is the result of the work of God on the people of God. It's not some external form like the way all of our churches are organized under some regional bishop. It's a unity that's spiritual, of the heart, of doctrine, of practice. 
But, and here's the second question for the text. Do we have it now or do we get it later? Is this unity something that we have right now or do we grab for it? Do we go after it? Do we try to receive it? Do we try to attain it? I want to argue this is a unity we have now in Christ by faith, something he establishes by his blood. We don't ultimately accomplish it. Christ did. We don't attain it, but we should seek to maintain it. We should be eager not to destroy what Jesus created in us. Maybe you can't tell from John chapter 17, because Jesus is obviously praying this before he goes to the cross. But it's interesting, he speaks in a kind of peculiar way. If you're really thinking about it, look back at verse 4. He says, he glorified the Father on earth, having accomplished the work he gave him to do. He says, it's already done. But then look at verse 11. He says he's no longer in the world, which he's praying while he's in the world. (laughs) It's like the scripture is asking us to think for a second about what could this possibly mean? What must this mean? I think we should see Jesus as praying proleptically. I think he's praying with the future in view. He's praying right now in light of what he knows is going to happen. The work is going to be finished. I think we should take his prayer as including the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the sending of the disciples. I think that's the work the Father sent him to do. How do I know that? Well, because Paul writes Ephesians on the other side of the cross and resurrection, the side we find ourselves on today. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, where you can see the same kind of teaching of the Bible about the unity of God's people. But the verb tenses, the phrasing is a little bit different. If you're looking at Ephesians 4, I'll start reading in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So in Christ, we have unity with all of God's people. On the basis, not of what we've done, but of what he's already done. We should be eager to maintain, Paul says, to preserve, to protect what we have in Christ. Flip back to John 17. And look down at verse 23. Back in John 17. Jesus prayed that we'd become perfectly one. I'm going to say more about how this works when I get to the second point. But I just want to say now, I think this is a unity that we have now in Christ by faith, and it grows. I think that's the way to reconcile these two things. It's a unity that we have now, and it grows by our being further marked out by God through his word. So what unifies us, our faith in Christ and his gospel, do we have it now or do we get it later? I think we have it now by faith. And then third, How far does this unity extend? 
This is the third question I'm going to ask in point one. How far does this unity extend? What I mean by that is, how, does this, how far does this thing really go? <laughs> like, you're up there saying a lot of things about being of one heart and mind and will. How much do we really have to agree on in Christ? Well, I want you to encourage, I want us to, as a church, I want to encourage us as a church to focus on our statement of faith and our church covenant, which we've been looking at the last couple of weeks together. In our statement of faith, we've outlined everything we intend to believe as a church. That's our doctrine. Beyond that, there's Christian freedom to disagree. In our church covenant, we've outlined the ways in which we intend to live together as a church. That's our practice. These documents draw a circle around the unity that we have, around what unifies us, our doctrine and our practice. They mark us out as a distinct people. Our faith in Christ as Savior and our desire to follow him as Lord. That's what we have unity around. When we try to add to these documents, the statement of faith and the church covenant, either by what we say with our mouth or by what we imply with our life, we actually endanger our unity. We could say the same thing about trying to subtract from these documents. When we say it takes more than what's in our statement of faith, more than what's in our church covenant to be unified, we endanger the unity that we have. When we say it's less, like all that stuff's not actually necessary, we endanger the unity that we have. And I don't want you to think this is just theoretical. This is just stuff we think about. It's actually imminently practical. We're not just agreeing to believe certain things, but to live in a certain way. J.C. Ryle, again, says, Jesus prays that all of his disciples would be of one mind, one doctrine, one opinion, one heart, and one practice, closely united and joined together. And I hope you can tell at this point, it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? It's a little bit like walking on a tightrope, and you don't want to fall off on either side, adding or subtracting. Which is why Ryle also says, those who make uniformity the chief subject of this part of Christ's prayer entirely miss the point. It's a unity, not a uniformity. So what unifies us? Well, it's the mercy of God. And the powerful unity that we have in Christ by faith testifies to that mercy. But it also testifies to the love of God. This is point number two. Our precious unity testifies to the love of God. Look back at verse 22 in the passage. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. What's the glory? It's actually a really tricky question if you look at the commentaries. I think it's the revelation of God's name, which Jesus has been praying about, how the Father gave to him and he gave to his disciples in context. The glory is the revelation of God's good character and glorious nature, especially as that's expressed in the Father loving the Son in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, who is the bond of their unity. 
The Father sent the Son into the world to save sinners, the mercy of God, which we've been talking about. But he also brings saved sinners into the love of God through the grace of the Son in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This glory is what the Father gave to the Son to give to his people. It's the Holy Spirit's work of bringing us into and binding us up in God himself. But what does it do? What does the glory do? It secures our unity as Christ's people. And that unity testifies to the unity of the Father and the Son. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if anybody's told you this. But the way you act towards your brother or sister in Christ says something about God. It says something about the Father's relationship to His Son. See, when you hate or envy or rival with your brother or sister in Christ, what you're actually saying with your life is that God the Father no longer loves His Son, Jesus. We can see further how our unity testifies to the love of God in verse 23. At the end of the verse, Jesus prays to the Father that we, His people, would be unified, that we might all know that the Father loves us even as he loves his son, Jesus. Which is really remarkable. I mean, this has got to be one of the most amazing verses in the whole Bible. That God the Father loves me like he loves Jesus. If you knew me at all, you'd know how insane that is. Just how earth-shattering that is. There's not a lot lovable in me. I got a lot of sin, y'all. That's incredible that by the mercy of God, he would save a sinner and bring him into the love of God. As much as the Father loves the Son, so the Father loves every one of Christ's followers. Our precious unity testifies to the love of God. Okay, but notice, notice the move in verse 23. I said we'd come back to this. Here we are. Notice the move from being unified to becoming unified. You see that Jesus prays in verse 21 that they would be one. And then he prays in verse 23 that they would become perfectly one. See that in verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. So Jesus gives us unity in God by faith and he perfects that unity as we wait in this life to see God in the next Perfect unity in the next life. Perfecting unity in this life. And there's a sense in which our labor to preserve and protect that unity Christ created is his perfecting work in us. When we make every effort to preserve the unity Christ gave us by faith, he's perfecting our unity. It's growing the way he prayed it would. All right, question for the text. How do we do it? Suppose it is as powerful and precious and important as I'm saying. I should protect it. I should preserve it. You should. But how? How do we protect and preserve our unity? I just want to answer right from the context. John chapter 17, look up a couple of verses. Verse 14. I'm going to give you four ways from John 17 
that we can protect and preserve our unity. Verse 14, we should receive and believe God's word. Listen to verse 14, Jesus prays, I have given them your word. I have given them your word. We should receive and believe God's word. That's where it starts. We will not have unity apart from God's word. How do you preserve and protect unity? Believe God's word. Every part of it. All of it. Even the parts you struggle to understand. Even the parts you don't particularly like. Receive and believe God's word and you will take the first step towards protecting and preserving your unity in Christ. The second thing we can do is remain steadfast in the face of opposition. This is the rest of verse 14. Remain steadfast in the face of opposition. I have given them your word, he says, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This is a common theme in John's gospel and really in all the gospels, that the world hates Christ and the world hates Christ's followers. You could see just right before this prayer, back in John 16, the last verse, what does Jesus say there? I've said these things, John 16, 33, to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You should expect opposition for your faith in Christ. If there's one thing that's clear in all the New Testament, it's that. Jesus is good and he saves sinners, and if you're one of them, you should expect to be opposed. Persecuted, caused to suffer because of a world who hates Christ and you as Christ's follower. How do you, want to, how do you preserve and protect unity? Well, you're going to have to remain steadfast in the face of opposition. No matter what happens, there is nothing more important than your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You hold on to him, he holds on to you. So receive and believe God's word, remain steadfast in the face of opposition. The next one's from verse 15, no surprise. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. Verse 15, John chapter 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Pause right there. He could have ended it there and said, take them out of the world and let's be done with this thing. He says the opposite. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. But instead, verse 15, that you keep them from the evil one. The evil one is the devil, our spiritual adversary, our enemy, the one who hates us and wants us to leave Christ, the one who wants no one else to believe in Christ. And what's interesting about his attack in the context of this passage is that he's coming for our unity. That's how Satan's going to attack us. You should just know that when you're tempted to hate or envy or strive with a brother or sister in Christ in this church, that is Satan doing that. There's a spiritual world that we cannot see with our eyes, but we know about by faith in the scriptures, that that's what's happening when you're tempted to hate someone or to want something they have that you don't have. That thing that endangers our unity, that's the devil's attacks. He's the one who attacks our unity. 
our confession of Christ. Why? Because he wants to make Christianity look unbelievable. Because he doesn't want anybody else to believe it. He wants you to lose your faith, and he doesn't want anybody else to have faith. And if he can disrupt churches, then there won't be so great a gospel witness on earth. So resist the devil. And then number four from verses 16 and 17, remain distinct from the world. So I said we're going to have to be steadfast in opposition, but we're also going to have to be distinct from the world, sanctified in the truth of God's word. Verse 16, Jesus prays, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's by believing in God's word that we remain distinct from the world. It's by following after Christ and doing what God says by grace through faith that we remain distinct from the world. Ben preached very well on this last week from 1 Peter 1. This is our holiness, our life of purity, which marks us out as God's people. If you want to protect and preserve unity, you're going to have to start with those four steps. Believe God's word, remain steadfast in the face of opposition, resist the devil, and remain distinct from the world. And I would urge you to pursue doctrinal maximalism, which is maybe not a phrase you've heard before. The alternative, minimalism, like how little can I believe? How little can I agree with the people sitting next to me about? That's what's common today. Just a mere Christianity. It's not going to offend anybody. I want us to think about it in the opposite direction. Think about how much you already do agree on with the person sitting in the seat next to you, if they're a member of the core team, with the other people in this room. Think about how much you can agree on, not how little. Don't be disagreeable or pugilistic or combative or argumentative. Don't go looking for fights. That's not going to help our unity. At TRBC, we actually are going to choose not to fight over some things. We're going to resolve. We're going to determine in our soul, in our spirit, not to fight about some things. Because we think schism or divisiveness is sin. Disrupting the unity Christ created, separating from believers for bad reasons, is a sin to be repented of, to be avoided. So we're going to choose not to fight over some things, but we're also going to decide that some hills are worth dying on, because they are. Practically, how does this work? Well, we need biblical wisdom, which is really just knowing how to make distinctions and when to apply them. That's what biblical wisdom is. Knowing how to distinguish and when to apply those distinctions. I'm going to give you three applied to this topic. A few distinctions for preserving and protecting our unity. Number one, rank. Rank. Not all doctrines are as important as every other doctrine. Think about a hospital ward, like the ER. When they're overrun with patients, what do you do? Doctors are trained to triage. You treat the most severe, dangerous wounds first. You do not go see someone with a head cold if there's someone with a gunshot wound. Likewise, we should triage our theology. We should understand that some things rank higher than others. You want an example? 
How about the deity of Christ? If you let go of that, you've left the territory of Christianity. You're in another religion land. That's completely different in rank from whether or not New Covenant Christians should fast. Completely different. You need to be able to distinguish between primary and secondary doctrines and tertiary ones if you're going to preserve and protect unity. Primary doctrines are those things which mark out Christianity as a religion. They're the things in our statement of faith. Secondary doctrines are those things which mark out one church from another. Think about who we should baptize or what day we should meet on. Tertiary doctrines are things upon which Christians can disagree in good conscience, which is the second distinction, conscience. First rank, second conscience. There's two things to say about conscience. Your conscience, if you don't know, is your sense of what's right and wrong. You should get your conscience in line with God's word. You should not feel that you're sinning if God doesn't say you're sinning. And yet you should also respect your conscience. This is the challenge of thinking about conscience biblically. We should not encourage other people to sin against their conscience. If someone thinks they're sinning, we should not encourage them to do it. There should also be room in our church for persuasion. We should help each other calibrate our conscience according to God's word. And you're just going to have to do both. It's a difficult balance to strike. It's a difficult road to walk, no doubt. So rank and conscience. And the third one is preference, which somebody just needs to tell you. Some things that you care a lot about, some things that I care a lot about are preferences. Mint chocolate chip ice cream is not good. That's a preference. And your like of mint chocolate chip ice cream, difficult as it may be, I'll still love you in Christ. You just want to be able to distinguish between a conviction, like a deeply held consideration of God's word, I think it would be wrong for me to do or not do this thing, conviction, from, no, I'm pretty sure that's just a really strong preference I have. Like, I actually think people could do this differently and not be unfaithful. You want to be able to point those things out. So this is not a unity at all costs, and it's not a uniformity either. There are some things we cannot disagree on, and there are some things we can disagree on. Let me give you some examples quickly of each. Things we can disagree on in this church are things like school choice, where you send your kids, whether it's private, public, homeschool, or charter. I don't even know what a charter school is still, but I know it's not a send a kid to send your kid there. You can tell me after. Things we can disagree on in this church. Number two, the details of the second coming. I'm not talking about Jesus is going to return and the final state is fixed. Those are in the statement of faith. I'm talking about what's the relationship of Jesus' second coming to that thousand-year period described in the book of Revelation chapter 20? What about the tribulation? How long is it? Does Jesus come back before, in the middle of, or after? There's room to disagree on all those things in this church. It's not so in some churches. Things we can disagree on. How old the earth is. I'm not talking about, did God create the world? I'm not talking about, did God create Adam directly as the first of his kind? We can't disagree on those things. I'm saying, how long ago did Genesis 1 and 2 happen? We can disagree on that. 
Or what about vaccinations? Whether you should get them, which one you should get, whether you should give them to your kids and when. Those are things we can disagree on as Christians. Or what about how we consume alcohol? Whether we should, how much we should. Again, hear me with charity. Being drunk is a sin. We shouldn't disagree on that. Whether or not we should drink alcohol is something we can disagree on. It's going to take wisdom and Christian love and charity to discern those sorts of things. You know what we can't disagree on? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? How can I have my sins forgiven and be made right with God? What's a church? We can't and shouldn't disagree on those things. Again, just think about what's in our statement of faith and our church covenant if you're looking for the list, the definitive list of things we can't disagree on. Statement of faith, church covenant. Now listen, y'all, Satan wants you to be confused about this. I realize talking about a bunch of distinctions that I'm encouraging you to use in your thought is very academic. And maybe it sounds boring to some of us. I just want you to know Satan does not like careful, clear distinctions for the sake of Christian love and unity. But it's a work we're going to need to engage in. Satan wants us to fight about everything or nothing. He does not care which one. He's happy both ways. He attacks our unity both ways. He disrupts churches and destroys gospel witness both ways. Just fight about everything. Just lose all conviction and fight about nothing. That's Satan. Resist the devil. He's going to attack. But Calvin, John Calvin says, this prayer of Christ is a safe harbor. And whoever retreats into it is safe from all danger of shipwreck. For it is as if Christ had solemnly sworn that he will devote his care and diligence to our salvation. So why all this talk about unity? Why do this in our seventh week together? Well, the first commitment that we make in our church covenant is that we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's just a quotation from Ephesians 4, which I read earlier, that we'll work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But I think there's another important reason to talk about this that's right in our text. In John chapter 17, look back at verse 23. Jesus prays that we would be one, even perfectly one. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So why has God made us one? In one important sense, it's evangelism. Our unity serves our evangelism. Showing God's love to the world with our deeds and then inviting them into it with our words. So if you want to win the world to Christ, you should love your Christian brother and sister in this church. I'm not talking about preach the gospel always and use words when necessary. I think that saying's garbage. You can't preach the gospel without words. I am talking about what Jesus said in John 13, 34 and 35, that the world will know that we're his disciples by our love for one another. There's something mysterious still to me about how this works. But Jesus prayed it and Jesus said it. 
Our unity testifies to the love of God to a watching world. When people come here and they see all of us who have so little in common in a lot of ways, and yet so much in common in the most important way, they will ask us, what is going on here? I pray that they will, and I pray that we'll be ready to tell them, to tell them about Christ and his gospel, how they can have their sins forgiven, how they can be reconciled to God. I think God uses preaching of the gospel in moments like those to save sinners and even to bring them into his love. So with our life together as a church, especially as we preserve and protect our unity around Jesus and his gospel, we're saying you too can be caught up in the love of God. As one commentator said, it's hard to imagine a more persuasive evangelistic appeal than that. So we need to recognize how precious and powerful our unity is and protect it. Because our unity testifies to the mercy and love of God. It's a precious and powerful unity that we have by faith in Christ. Jesus prayed for our unity and he promises our unity. So we should make every effort to preserve and protect what Christ purchased by his blood. Let's pray now and ask for God's help to do that. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his prayer in John 17, which instructs us how we ought to pray in so many ways. We thank you that he prayed for what we can trust will be true that we would be one, even as you, Father, are one with your Son, that the world might know that you sent Jesus to save sinners, that we all might know that you love us even as you love your Son, Jesus. Would you help us as we seek to preserve and protect this unity? Would you give us wisdom to walk with others in humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love? Help us, Lord, we pray, for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen.